this is a uh, virtual meeting of the Bipartisan Commission on Biodefense. Uh, it's good to see my colleagues on the commission uh, and uh, also to welcome people who are uh, watching this. Um, we, we hope that uh, uh, you learn something from it and uh, we welcome your ideas uh, afterward. Very briefly, the Bipartisan Commission on Biodefense was established in 2014 uh, to uh, ask fundamental questions about whether America was prepared for a uh, bio uh, attack, either from bioterrorists or from a naturally uh, occurring infectious disease pandemic. Uh, we have six members. I'm, I'm honored to be uh, joined as co-chair by Tom Ridge, who will have uh, a few words to say after I finish my few words, uh, and uh, um, equally balanced, uh, at least in partisan terms, of uh, four other members. Um, it, and, uh, we spent a lot of time uh, interviewing people, uh, researching, uh, learning, and in 2015, uh, we put out our baseline report, and the bottom line was that America was not prepared uh, for uh, either an infectious disease uh, pandemic outbreak in this country or a, a bioterrorist attack or even an accidental release of, a, of a, a biological pathogen from a lab here in the United States. We made recommendations. Several of them were adopted by Congress. We worked hard on that. In 2018, uh, President Trump issued uh, a national biodefense strategy, which was one of our major recommendations. But uh, I must say, um, uh, uh, sadly, uh, that uh, when uh, COVID-19 hit, um, uh, very few of the ideas that we uh, put forward, um, and even the ones that were adopted in legislation or were part of the biodefense strategy, very few of them were implemented or funded. And so the conclusion we reached at, in 2015 on our report that America was unprepared um, was unfortunately painfully true uh, in 2020 when the infectious disease uh, pandemic struck, which is why we have uh, titled this meeting uh, Forewarned But not for arm. COVID-19 forewarned, but not uh, forearmed. Why do I say it? I think we all know it because we've been uh, living this. Uh, America did not have the surveillance or detection capabilities in place to identify and help contain the spread of this highly contagious uh, disease, COVID-19. America did not have the medical countermeasures, uh, by that I mean vaccines, in place, treatment to, uh, to uh, or, or the ability to rapidly develop those vaccines or treatments. America was dependent uh, much too much on other countries for many of the medicines and essential supplies we needed and still need uh, to treat uh, those who uh, are uh, positive with the disease. Uh, the shortage in supplies that we noted in our 2015 report was again painfully evident uh, when this disease uh, struck us this year. Uh, so uh, America since then has been struggling 
to catch up with the disease and in, if, if possible to get ahead of it. Um, and, and we're still fighting that fight. And we on the commission know um, to a certainty that this is not the last infectious disease pandemic we face. Uh, and it may not be the biggest. And in fact, uh, next fall, uh, the disease, this disease, COVID-19, may return with equal or, or God forbid, uh, greater uh, ferocity. So uh, this is an opportunity for us uh, to discuss how we got here, uh, what we can on this commission uh, do um, with others, obviously, uh, to help uh, better prepare uh, for the next uh, wave or disease or outbreak, and of course what we can do to better uh, uh, prepare us uh, to deal with the current outbreak of COVID-19, because we know that this uh, battle, this war, if you will, uh, is not over. Um, uh, it, it's been a wonderful commission. We worked very well together. We have great staff, really professional staff, led by Dr. Asha George, but Honestly, the, uh, uh, it's been my a great pleasure to have an opportunity again to work with the co-chair, uh, governor, secretary, and just about everything great. Uh, uh, and my friend, and may I say John McCain's dear friend, uh, Governor Tamber, Secretary Ridge. Well, thank you. You're very kind. Senator, I was afraid you're going to say my good friend, run through a list of jobs that I've had and say, and he's still a good friend of mine, even though he can't hold a job. But <laughs> you didn't get yeah, it. you did them all very well. Thank you very much. Uh, listen, uh, we're very, very pleased to meet in the digital age in this fashion. It gives us an opportunity to continue the work, collaborative work, the bipartisan collaborative work we've been doing for six years. And to chair it with uh, Senator Lieberman and a couple of colleagues mm -hmm. on both sides of the aisle, has probably been one of the most rewarding public sector experiences I've had during my lifetime. And I've spent a great deal of time in the public sector, but collaborating with men and women on both sides of the aisle on an issue that we thought six years ago demanded immediate attention, including reorganization within the federal government as we anticipated the potential impact, economic and social, if a pathogen was thrown at us by a nation state, a terrorist organization, and perhaps the most versatile, patient, and clever enemy, Mother Nature. Five years later, what we've seen validated our work I think highlights some of the recommendations that we made. Some were accepted, most were discussed, and post COVID-19, and not as if we're going to eliminate COVID-19, it will be part of public health challenges forevermore. But we hope to play as constructive a role going forward as we have in the past, identifying gaps and needs with regard to this country's ability to respond to the pandemic wherever it, regardless of the source. Interestingly enough, 
the first recommendation we made was that given the severity of the challenges we foresaw around a pandemic, was to virtually empower the Vice President of the United States on a permanent basis to oversee the multiple structures and literally billions of dollars and thousands of personnel within the federal government to prepare for, defend against, and then respond and recover in the event the nation was struck with a pandemic. That we've seen that the Vice President has overseeing this task force, but perhaps going forward, it will be a recommendation that is embedded into the permanent infrastructure. Time will tell. But what we also have learned during this previous, during the past uh, half year, and actually when you think about all the conversations people have had in the past decade about the globalization of finance and the globalization of transportation, the globalization of communication, Unfortunately, this has demonstrated in the most powerful global way the globalization of disease. And as my friend, as Senator Lieberman pointed out, uh, this is probably not, this definitely won't be the last potential epidemic that we have to deal with. And the good possibility, if we're not better prepared, it may, need, may not be the worst. I must tell you, I've been thinking about this and so my colleagues on the board, but my personal involvement in Southeast Asia as a soldier, I think about the number of names of the men and women on the monument. Vietnam Veterans Memorial is less than 60,000, and that was over a period of many, many years. We're knocking on the door of 70,000 in a period of three to four months in the United States. So we're at war with Mother Nature, and we have to harness our resources to a, to a far better job of not only detecting the enemy, but able to respond and recover when her, uh, when her grip, uh, when her strong grip uh, challenges us and challenges our infrastructure. So again, I'm very pleased to be associated. We got a great uh, group of analysts this afternoon. I will introduce them a little bit later on, but I just want to remind everyone that uh, we're at the ready. We saw what might occur and we hope to be a very constructive influence and policy making going forward. It's a pleasure to serve with my colleagues. Thank you, Senator. Thanks, Governor. And uh, next, uh, Senator Tom Daschle, my leader in the Senate and still my leader. Thanks uh, for being part of this. Thank you, Joe and Tom. You, you both have spoken so eloquently about, about what we've been doing and what we're about and what we ought to be thinking about in the future. In the interest of time and to respect uh, Donna Shalala's time, I'm gonna, I'm gonna yield back and and hope to hear from her. Uh, thanks, Tom. Appreciate that. Jim Greenwood, former congressman, head of bio. Uh, all yours. Thank you, Joe. And I'll just introduce myself for those who may not know who I am. I'm the president and CEO of a thing called the Biotechnology Innovation Organization. I've been doing this for over 15 years now. And we have the National Trade Association for about a thousand biotechnology companies, <clears throat> many of whom, at least 60 of whom, are now working on some 400 projects to um, create therapeutics and vaccines against COVID. Great. Uh, and finally, uh, Ken uh, Weinstein, a former Homeland Security Advisor in the White House, former U.S. Attorney, and uh, just the current great lawyer and member of the uh, Commission. Well, thanks so much for the introduction. I'll, um, I'll take the time yielded back by Jim and Tom and go on for 45 minutes or so. 
Um, but actually, for once in my life, I won't go on too long because I really want to hear what Donna has to say. So good to see everybody and great to see you, Donna. Thank you. Thanks, Ken. Thanks, Ken. Let, let me just briefly uh, welcome uh, Donna. I love that backdrop behind you, Donna. Uh, Donna Shalala, uh, for those who are, are tuning in, uh, was an original and really important member of this bipartisan commission from the start in uh, 2014 until she was uh, just uh, uh, taken from us by the voters of the 27th Congressional District in Florida who were wise enough to uh, elect her uh, to Congress. But she was a, a wonderful contributing member of the, of the commission, obviously former secretary, former dean, former president, so many other things. Um, it, incidentally, uh, Donna particularly focused on um, the role of state and local governments and uh, tribal and territorial governments in responding uh, to uh, bioevents. And uh, it's been really fascinating in the, in the last few months to watch the uh, extraordinarily prominent role of the uh, states and localities uh, particularly. Anyway, we're delighted uh, that you uh, are giving us this time. Frankly, you can talk about whatever you want related to this or whatever you want, and then uh, probably we'll, we'll have some questions. Thank you, great to see you again, and you look great. Thank you very much. Uh, the background is uh, from my uh, uh, living room window, uh, <laughs> actually. Uh, let, me, um, let me say uh, uh, hello to all of you, and I miss you. But the framework in which I've been working since I was a member of Congress is really the context in which uh, we wrote our report. So it was very important for me to have the background of the bipartisan uh, uh, commission. And uh, let me just say a couple of things. Number one, boy, we weren't ready. We just, all of the recommendations that we made in terms of building up the infrastructure and the kind of readiness strategy uh, that we proposed, we were not ready for COVID-19. Uh, uh, and we better get ready in the future, which I think uh, the Bipartisan Commission will play a critical role in. That's number one. Uh, uh, and we weren't ready at any level. Certainly our recommendation for the vice president in charge was a good one. I was very wary about it. But I have to say that if, uh, with uh, just personally, if the president had gotten out of the way, the vice president would have done just fine because he had the right tone uh, about working with state and local governments um, and uh, certainly the right kind of relationships. And he put the scientists in front. He never second guessed uh, their opinions. and. And therefore, I think that recommendation, which I admit I was very wary about, uh, uh, was the right one. The problem is we couldn't manage the president uh, in the process, but um, I would stick certainly to that recommendation. Of all the recommendations we made for readiness, the most important for the future may be the integrated budget. That may be the way in which we put together a readiness strategy uh, for the future, because without 
uh, certainly the appropriators, and by the way, I've become a great fan of the appropriators because they're grown-ups and they seem to be able to get the deals cut, uh, the bipartisan uh, deals cut. So um, I've been a big fan. We have actually done a much better job on appropriations uh, right through at least my first year than I, um, than I expected. And they've been bipartisan and they, they seem to be able to work together um, uh, very well. So I think if we led with budget reform, if we led with an integrated budget to put the pieces together, I think we have a real chance of getting this readiness strategy in place. And finally, let me say something about a piece of legislation that Jamie Raskin and um, uh, Welch and uh, Anna Eshoo and I put together called the Reopen the Government Strategy, which basically is focused on federalism. It identifies the role of the federal government, two roles. Number one, to do all the purchasing. One of the things we've run into is the purchasing of PPE, of the protective equipment, of the ventilators, has the states and the hospitals competing against each other with the federal government. In fact, uh, two weeks ago, my county had ordered PPE and the feds came in and actually outbidded outbid them uh, for, the, for the supplies. And I actually think particularly the military knows how to buy big things and knows how to be a central purchasing uh, agent. That is a clear role for the federal government, whether it's masks or ventilators or PPE, and then they know how to distribute them across the country in some kind of fair formula. That's number one. Number two is the states, as we've learned, have considerable leadership to come up with the strategy as long as the scientists lay out the guidelines for that strategy. And the CDC has done that, but in a pretty vague way. But I believe the states ought to come in to HHS or a combination of HHS and uh, maybe Homeland Security, present their strategies based on the science, have them reviewed, and then we actually ought to fund those strategies straight out, but the states execute them. It's a simple, straightforward approach based on science, but it means that the states would all meet the same standard instead of what we have now with no state has met the CDC standards, yet they're all in a very disorganized way opening up and you can see the virus spreading across the country. If we didn't learn anything from AIDS, where we thought it was going to be on two coasts and then it spread, um, we needed to learn something now. And um, I think that combined with, um, with the kind of infrastructure that has to be funded, um, our strategy is sort of a straightforward way to get our arms around to raise the standards high enough to the scientific standards, but to let the states do what they know how to do, and that is to execute the strategy. Um, and uh, we've been talking to lots of people. The problem is this: uh, the president, not this administration. I want to be fair because I've talked to lots of people in the administration. They don't want to take the responsibility for either the purchasing or the reviewing of plans. Um, they really want to delegate it down. I don't think that's an appropriate role. I think what we're the weakness here is now the federal role, not the state role. Um, so let me end there. 
and say that how important um, our, and I'm going to say our reports have been to my own thinking and to my colleagues' thinking um, in the Congress. We have a lot of work to do. Um, and to the extent that you can anticipate the future, because that's what first class commissions do, um, everybody's going to comment on the past, but I'm very concerned about anticipating the future. Uh, thank you very much. Let me end there. Thanks, Donna. That's a great uh, beginning. Um, let, let me start uh, uh, with a question, and, and it really picks up, up on what you said. Uh, and you said that uh, th there are going to be a lot of questions to ask about what happened in January, February, March, et cetera, and why we weren't more ready uh, than we obviously were. But, but now I, I agree with you. We've got to focus on what we're going to do next uh, to, to get ahead of the virus. And there'll be a time to come back. Um, maybe congressional investigation, maybe a 9-11 tech commission, whatever. So let, let me ask you this. Um, what, is, what do you think we, this bipartisan commission on biodefense, what, what's, what are the areas in which we can uh, be most constructive from today uh, forward? Well, I would take uh, uh, the integrated budget piece that we did and apply it to COVID-19. So it's defense, but it's also that public health uh, piece. I would rework it so that we can actually hand the Congress, these are the things that you've got to fund so we can catch this early the next time. And I would bring in some public health people probably to inform it um, a little better. So, but I would still keep thinking national security because this is a national security issue. I would not get out of the, the biodefense piece. Uh, for one thing, it's got a broader uh, constituency, certainly in Congress, than just talking about public health where people's eyes glaze over. So if I had to do one thing, given the context and uh, the expertise of the commission, I think um, while Nancy has, um, uh, Clyburn chairing a very important group. I'm on the oversight on the finance side, but um, someone needs to hand them uh, a budget that respects the federal and the state, the federalism piece, but tells the federal government and each of the appropriators what they need to fund and what needs to be put in place. No one's done that. Uh, that's really interesting. So uh, would we go so Beyond making the case for an integrated budget, which I think you, you, you've uh, correctly highlighted, uh, and I appreciate it, um, but should we actually try to put numbers on, on the- I some, would, yeah. I would, at least the initial numbers. But okay. I, um, uh, and you and Tom know more about this than I do, but a multiple year funding to really put the system in place will be important and um, you know the politics of this better than I do. Um, uh, you know, I'm a, just a freshman. Member <laughs> <of Congress. laughs> That's great. <laughs> yeah, all right. Uh, and I'm not an appropriator, so. Uh, no. But it, it looks to me like you've learned a lot very quickly. <laughs> well, I was well educated by the commission. Sure, sure. Uh, by life, I think. Uh, Governor Rich. Yes, thank you. Congresswoman, it's delightful to see you. And I, I might add, I suspect you learned a little bit about the politics of Washington as a cabinet member as well. So uh, 
Yeah, I, I'm intrigued by, and as a former governor, really appreciate the notion that the feds could set up some guidelines and uh, your, uh, not criticism, but your suggestion that maybe CDC could be a little bit more granular, a little bit more specific based on science as to providing the kind of guidance that's necessary for the individual governors to build out their strategies. I like that a lot. And I guess I'm hopeful that uh, you and Congress will push CDC to do specifically that because I do believe that the strategies among the 50 states will vary. And to your point, it should vary even yeah. within each state based on countywide or regional data. I mean, so we've talked about that, but I'm really interested in maybe too granular. I don't know what kind of interaction you've had with FEMA. And uh, we know FEMA is getting ready for the hurricane season. We know historically uh, they are responding to uh, more often than not those kind of natural disasters, tornadoes, hurricanes, floods, and the like. Have they been well positioned or were perhaps a question well prepared to play a role, a constructive role, as they were empowered back in March to uh, work through uh, the various federal agencies to provide adequate support for state and locals. What's your, what's your sense of that? My sense is that uh, FEMA has done a good job working with the emergency management people in the state. Um, their public health people are basically HHS's public health people. I mean, they're, they're all trained the same way. But the one thing they've been able to do is to work with the state emergency management people. If you ask um, my governor or, more importantly, uh, my county executive um, how he's working with the federal government, he's actually doing it through his emergency management people and through FEMA. He's making the requests through them. So um, uh, I have nothing but good things to say about uh, about FEMA and their respect for federalism. Um, in, in your point about the CDC, um, our, Jamie Raskin and I, our strategy was the states would submit their plans, their strategies to HHS, and then they would interact with the public health people who would make suggestions on how to fine tune those strategies. But the most important piece is the states wouldn't have to fund them the federal government ought to fund those strategies. But that interaction, recognizing the difference between rural, more rural states like South Dakota and um, a mixture in Pennsylvania uh, is very important. But you've got to have the scientists at the table. They are not policy makers. It, the, the governors are the policy uh, makers here. But the governors need to be well informed at what point do they start uh, tracing, for example, and, and hiring people to do that? Um, my own criticism of the administration is they should have hit this thing with a hammer. We need to starve it, not to play around, uh, around the edges, but to starve it and to hit it with a hammer and then you have a chance um, of getting it contained. But we need some uniformity across the states with a recognition of their differences. But the uniformity is science-based. Right, exactly. Very good. Does that make sense? Yes, sir, it does. Okay. At least does to me. Thank you. And me too. Senator Daschle. 
Donna, thank you for being with us this afternoon. Thank you for your passionate advocacy. And we're just so glad you're there. We've never needed you more in public life. You, you, you touched on two things that I want to ask questions about briefly. You, uh, I really like the idea of an integrated budget. And I would ask whether you think as part of that integrated budget, there really ought to be an emphasis on integrated data. But I'd love to have your thoughts on that. And then secondly, uh, you're absolutely right in connecting public health with national security, but no one knows better than you how public health has been decimated in the last 10 or 15 years budgetarily. What interest and support have you found in Congress to, uh, to that appreciation and the need for a major investment in public health going forward as a part of national security? I think uh, there's, uh, there's substantial interest as part of an overall strategy of readiness uh, in the Congress, but there's a lot of interest by the governors because suddenly they didn't even know who their public health people were, so, except for you know, targeted outbreaks, um, certainly. Uh, on data, here's what I've been saying. It's data, not a date. You have to have the data to set the date. So um, uh, I read, um, you've done some good work on data and on integrating data. That absolutely has to be the basis of it. But we have to agree on what the pieces are. The problem um, that the CDC has had is that every state wants to put their little twist on it. So comparing data on outbreaks has been complicated for them. And we've just got to get our arms around it and get agreement among the governors uh, as well. Because I think that you can't leave the data to the data people They'll identify the data, but the governors have to buy into that so that their public health officials are all collecting enough of the basics so we know what's going on. Thank you, Donna. You can tell I'm very high on states <laughs> yeah, and, well, that's and good. on their role. Uh, Congressman Jim Greenwood. Thank you, Joe, and, and nice to see you, Congresswoman. I think looking out my window here at this cloudy, rainy day, I wish I was uh, where you are right now. In <laughs> um, your role in Congress, um, one, I'm thinking about one of the um, sets of recommendations that we made below these almost five years ago um, that Congress could insist upon if it wanted to has to do with the recommendation that, that the, the urban areas create a, a stratified system of hospitals where you would choose hospitals in those urban areas and decide which one, sort of like a trauma system, which hospital was most um, uh, would be best prepared to deal with the first wave in a pandemic and then which hospital the second wave and so forth. And I think one of the recommendations that we made that I just feel was just so unfortunately missed was that in those hospitals, you could forward deploy a whole set of equipment, whether it's PPEs or ventilators and so forth, uh, in those hospitals, in those cities, in a rational way, based upon that stratification of the hospitals. And um, obviously, had that happened, um, it would have been an entirely different uh, situation. We wouldn't have had all of the scrambling for equipment and ventilators and sharing ventilators and, and traveling all over the world to, to get stuff. Um, the question I have is, is the, the next pandemic, or God forbid, the a, a bioterror event, may not be one that is particularly focused on the lungs and the respiratory system and so forth. And so it might um, require a different set of 
of, of devices and, and reagents and medicines and equipment and so forth. So, and I don't know if you've thought about this or this is a fair question, but it's one that I've been thinking about. Do you think that um, there's a way to, um, for Congress to weigh in on this issue and insist that CMS um, reimburse hospitals for, for the equipment that they're going to uh, stockpile and that there's a there's a co a reasonable set of gear and equipment and medicines that would fit into that kind of a stockpile uh, to be deployed ahead of time in the cities. You know, I did the original stockpile in the 1990s, and we assumed uh, that it was going to be a flu epidemic uh, that hit us, uh, so we weren't ready with ventilators, and then it wasn't really built upon. Um, uh, much after that, but um, let me, this has a lot to do with also the big supply chain issue. And that is where are we going to produce all of this? Um, I was so nervous in the 90s about flu vaccines that um, uh, I actually made the decision that we would only produce flu vaccines for Americans in the United States. And the big contract was with a Pennsylvania company actually. Um, and the vaccines are produced in Pennsylvania, whatever the CDC decides the mix is, because I was so worried about a uh, pandemic in which we would not, we would be dependent on other places. That's what essentially happened here, the reagent problem uh, with the Chinese. So it's not that I don't believe in a global marketplace, but we have to figure out um, as part of our overall strategy, how much of the supply chain we're going to produce here that can be expanded and how much we're going to depend on the rest of the world. So we have to be very careful about these things. As to the, the regional hospital system, Denver actually uh, developed that system. One of the challenges there is most of the hospitals uh, in um, South, in, in my county are in my district. They're actually, I have most of the beds, which accounts for the fact that I have most of the deaths in South Florida uh, because the hospitals are in my district. But, but there's no question that we could have levels of hospitals like we do laboratories, where you have a level four laboratory that's a very different thing. And we certainly can identify them. It's hard to talk to someone in South Florida because we're organized for hurricanes so we actually have systems for expanding. Keeping uh, supplies is another great challenge. The governor of New York has now ordered every hospital to have three months worth of supplies. He's just said, you've just got to warehouse it, but you also have to use it uh, so that the, uh, the dates don't uh, get out. I have always thought we should use the VA as the supply centers because they can keep the supplies uh, moving through their patients. And they also have enough space for warehousing. And um, I long ago thought that we should use the VA system in a much more creative way. But the most important thing is um, that you're absolutely right, that these are part of the pieces that we have to look at, but we also have to look very hard at, um, at the science and at the supply chain for the production of uh, therapeutics, but um, just as important, where are we gonna produce the vaccines? Are we gonna do our own 
Uh, and the same thing with the tests. We are so reliant on the private sector for the tests and they're reliant on uh, the reagents and other things from other places. So we have to think that through, but I wanna think it through not in a jingoistic way, but in a way that can be expanded if we need to expand it here. It requires a different level of sophistication. Does that answer your question, Jim? It does. What's well, just one quick follow-up, if I could, Joe. Um, if, you're, if we're going to have the hospitals um, stockpile this, this equipment, they're not going to be reimbursed by their commercial insurers because they're not using it. It's by its, by its very nature set aside. So, I mean, ultimately, it seems to me that, that somebody's going to have to pay for whatever. Yeah, the feds are the really... Governor, you're talking about redundancy, and the feds are going to have to pay for redundancy. Right. Exactly. Uh, there's, no, uh, there's no question about that. But one of the reasons we weren't ready is because our healthcare system has so slimmed down to, to make money that we had no way of expanding quickly. That, right. that in fact, we have forced the efficiency, the efficiency of our healthcare systems in the United States made it difficult to deal with this. Right. That was the challenge. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Jim. Ken. Unintended consequences. Yeah, happens. Ken, Winston. Okay. Winston. Thanks, Joe. Just um, want to follow up sort of on the, the broader kind of more global question about um, using this as a painful but uh, effective learning experience. And, you know, going, going back to Joe's initial comments, you know, we issued this report, uh, whatever it was, six years ago, um, had a number of recommendations. Bottom line is, number of us, we all saw this coming, that there would be a, uh, an issue if we ever actually um, were hit with either a man-made or naturally occurring uh, bio threat. And, and sure enough, now that's come true very sadly, but this does have, them have the makings of a, both a learning opportunity and then an opportunity to take advantage of the public and political reaction to the, the tragedy. But as we know, that, that reaction has a shelf life. You know, we see, you know, 9-11, there's a flurry of activity after 9-11, but if we waited five years or so for something to happen, those, all the changes that allowed for integration in our intelligence community, that was so important, probably wouldn't have ever happened. Would have lost the political will to do it. So one of the things that I know a number of your colleagues have proposed is, uh, is to create a, a look back commission. And we've talked a little bit about what our role and that would be. Um, what, just from your experience and your current position, what specific recommendations would you have for how to structure that uh, commission, how to structure it so that it's effective, um, that it's, you know, it's, it's perceived as being non-political, that, um, that it actually works in a timely way so that we're not waiting for several years before we get the makings of recommendations that then translate into to real action when for all we know, the next epidemic could be coming along the pike you know, very soon. And given how many you know, epidemics we've had over the last 15, 20 years, frequency with, with which they've come, obviously this being the worst for our country, um, we don't have a lot of time. So um, kind of a mouthful there, but what would be your recommendation if you were structuring that look back mission, how would you do it in a way that maximizes its effectiveness um, and uh, and does so in a relatively uh, timely manner. You know, um, uh, I would think number one of uh, the difference between 9/11 and uh, COVID-19 is that COVID-19 has no shelf life. Uh, 
it's going to be with us for a long time. Mm -hmm. um, I would do a one-year commission. I would not spend more time than that. I would do it outside of Congress. Um, I don't think a presidential commission makes sense. I mean, or a congressional commission. We've all got, I just got appointed to an oversight group by Nancy, but um, I would, um, I would do a one-year commission outside of the government. And it could be that yours can be reconstituted, depending on, um, and, you know, maybe Bill Gates is willing to write the check for it. But it seems to me um, that even with hearings, you could get in and out of this, given the background of this commission and how much work you've already done, that you could get in and out of it pretty quickly with recommendations as soon as possible for the next Congress. And I just, I think it would be a mistake for someone to take two or three years and gear up and, and, um, and do that. But that's just my instincts about these things. Because I think in the next Congress, we're gonna wanna do a bunch of things. The other thing is, we've spent a lot of money. <laughs> And the next Congress is not going to want to spend a lot of money. So we've got to figure out a way to do this quickly and to figure out how to fund it. Um, uh, and that means we have to get in and out. And I think we know the outlines of the report. I think we got a pretty good idea what the outlines are because you've we've done all this work. I don't think it's rocket science at this point. And that's a great answer. Um, incidentally, I can't help but think back, and Tom Daschle was really extraordinarily supportive when, after 9-11, uh, John McCain and I uh, suggested an independent, nonpartisan commission. Part of why we did it was that you could already see Congress and the administration beginning to joust for who's going to write the, the history of how did this happen and so uh, this bipartisan commission with Tom Keene and Lee Hamilton at the heads of it really did a great job. Um, so I, I, I take your point, and I think it's really interesting and important that we reflect on it, that uh, we need something pretty quickly. If we try to do an investigation of what happened in February, January, February, March, April, we can do that probably, but that's a different, that's, and that's probably important to try to do independently, but really the, the big uh, 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 question, the most important thing we can do is to recommend what's, what's next. And you're right, we do have this uh, five-year, six-year history now background. So I, I don't know whether it's plausible politically that, um, that we would be engaged, but it, I, I appreciate your saying it. Yeah. And uh, who knows? <laughs> the report knows? ought to be called What's Next. What's Next? I mean, yeah. uh, you can write the history of who slipped up and who didn't pay attention to whom in three pages. <laughs> but yeah. at this point, I want to save, save the world. And that's why the report has to be What's Next. So that's, that's very constructive. Um, and it, it leads me to just ask one follow-on question, not specifically related to an independent report. One of the things that's been uh, interesting and really heartening to me is that uh, 
at a time of unprecedented partisanship, uh, this uh, uh, public health and economic crisis has um, um, engendered a response from Congress and the White House that has been remarkably bipartisan, even though there's a lot of partisan static around. But these bills of really enormous size, which are necessary, of course, uh, you know, pass so overwhelmingly. So um, it, just thinking about uh, what's next, and even the short range about an integrated budget, what's the mood um, uh, in Congress about this? Is this going to hold together in this way, or is it going to begin to break on partisan lines again? Um, I, you know, as we get closer to the election, yeah. I think it's going to get a little more partisan. I think we have a chance to do a couple more bills. But frankly, it's so easy to have bipartisanship when you've made a decision to spend trillions of dollars. <laughs> yes. And, I mean, uh, yeah. any of you that have been um, elected officials know that if you've got a lot of money on the table, you can cut the deal. Yeah. Um, but next year, everybody's going to want austerity. So that's why what, what's next is so critical from my point of view. Uh, do I think the bipartisanship will fall apart? Uh, we're gonna try not to let it fall apart, but you can, I can just feel it as we get closer and closer uh, yeah. to the election. Yeah. So uh, that's my read of it. But you, know, you all have more experience than I do in kind of reading the tea leaves. Okay, that's helpful. Uh, Tom Bridge, another question? I do not, uh, Senator. I will defer. Do we have any ex officio members that uh, choose to ask a question? I would defer to them. Let me know what I can do to help. Donna, we're very lucky you're there, really. The country's lucky well, I, you're there. I've learned a lot from all of you. Uh, and vice versa. Anyway, be well. Godspeed, and we'll keep in touch. You've been really Hi, helpful, specifically helpful. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Governor Tom, I turn it over to you. Well, thank you, Senator. We've got a, a very interesting uh, panel that uh, is positioned to uh, help us not only take a look at uh, what's transpired over the past couple of months, but maybe to project uh, forward as to what more needs to be done, not only to deal with the COVID-19, but it's uh, fairly safe to predict that uh, a pandemic will reemerge may be even more virulent than the one we're confronting right now. So we've asked uh, three individuals to uh, share their thoughts with us. One is one of our own ex officio members. We all know uh, Dr. Tevi Troy. We know he was a deputy secretary at Health and Human Services. We know he's a very prolific author. Uh, we know he's uh, contributed uh, to the work of this panel now for six years. And so we've invited him to take uh, his uh, sense of history, including presidential history, his, uh, his take on the kind of leadership at time of crisis, as well as his health and science background to share with us some thoughts. He's joined in this uh, panel with uh, Dr. Nicolette Louis-Saint. Uh, she is the executive director of Healthcare Ready. It is an organization supporting the uh, critical and continued provision of medicines to patients whose health is threatened by this pandemic and other emergencies, and frankly, that uh, sometimes disrupt uh, the supply chain of uh, these uh, medical measures and countermeasures uh, 
to our uh, hospital and healthcare community. And the uh, third member of the panel is Dr. Brent Satterfield. He's the chief science officer, chief technical officer, and founder of Code Diagnostics. Uh, we're looking forward to get his take on where we stand with diagnostics. And again, it's not just for COVID-19, uh, but for future pathogens that we have to deal with. And it's interesting, uh, some of the speakers we've had this morning in these private conversations talked about the, uh, the ongoing need of uh, diagnostics, the ability to surge up and uh, build them at a, a moment's notice if in fact the, 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 uh, the pathogens, the content of the, the, the pathogen changes and we need a different kind of diagnostic to understand how we can develop the therapeutics as well as the vaccine. So we've got a very interesting panel and uh, Dr. Troy, is a, uh, it's a, my great pleasure on behalf of the group that you've worked with now for six years to say the floor is yours. Thank you, Dr. Troy. Great, thank you very much, Governor and Senator and everyone else on the panel. It really is an honor to be on this panel but it's also an extra special honor to be able to present to the panel because I know the level of expertise all of you have and that all of you are seeking when, when we speak. I wanna talk about a couple of things. You know, in February, you had people who, you know, I know people like to criticize the president, but there, there were people who were responsible saying this isn't gonna happen here. That was in February. And the reason they were saying that, and you, had, you saw those comments from Dr. Fauci, and also the president said something about uh, you know, 15 people, he doesn't think it's gonna spread, is because there was an understanding that in a modern system with infection controls, we know how to stop these things, we know how to limit them, and we have a series of defenses to prevent these things from happening. And I, I like to talk a little bit today about the, the three levels of defenses that we have in these cases, and unfortunately how they didn't really serve us well in this circumstance. The first is international monitoring. We generally are pretty good at looking around the world and seeing what is going on. And our, our people at, who, who monitor this kind of stuff generally, uh, first of all, they're supposed to be monitoring this stuff and they're supposed to have a good understanding of what is happening around the world. And we have had some hiccups in this area in the past, particularly with SARS back in 2003, but there was a, a feeling that we had perhaps resolved some of those issues. And I think that feeling that perhaps we had resolved some of those issues was in fact contributory to what happened here this time. There was a belief that the Chinese had learned their lesson and were going to be more forthcoming this time. And there was a belief both by U.S. public health officials, but also uh, within the WHO. And there's a sense that the, the Chinese got burned before by not being more forthcoming and sharing samples earlier and that they would have a, a different approach. That unfortunately and sadly was not the case. But beyond international monitoring, we are generally good at if somebody shows up in the country with the disease, we know how to track, trace, isolate. If somebody shows up there, we know how to address the problem. And even if we find a small cluster, we know how to go through the people who are in that cluster and find them and then again, isolate them. And again, there was a failure here in large part because of the lack of tests. And uh, there's been lots of discussion about uh, CDC. And um, I would say there was some real arrogance on the part of CDC that, that they um, believed that uh, they were the only ones who could come up with these tests and they didn't really want to uh, look elsewhere for the tests. I think that was a problem. Uh, Governor Ridge asked earlier something about the uh, CDC budget, how much uh, they spent since 9-11. And I would quickly estimate that it was over $100 billion spent since 9-11. And obviously that money, uh, some of it was well spent, but not all of it was well spent. So we did have this phenomenon 
with, with the second line of defense of people showing up in the country. And we would, we should, in a normal circumstance, like with Ebola in 2014, be able to identify those people and trace who they were in contact with. Now, Ebola was obviously in some ways, although it's horrific and deadly, easier because if you have Ebola, you are not walking around, you're not ambulatory, you are, you are very ill, so symptomatic people are the contagious ones. Here we have learned, and unfortunately learned too late, that it's the asymptomatic people who are uh, extremely contagious in this particular circumstance. So we were unable to do that second level of defense in terms of the tracking, tracing, and isolation of people who have the disease. And then the third is one thing that we've been very good at, and one thing that this, um, that this panel has talked a lot about is the strategic national stockpile. And what we do is we acquire and we stockpile and we deploy countermeasures when they are needed. And I think we're pretty good at this, and I think we saw in the 2009 flu, the H1N1, we did deploy the antivirals um, pretty quickly and uh, did a good job at mitigating that flu. Unfortunately, and this is something I wrote, I've got my uh, book here on presidents and disasters on uh, Shall We Wake the President. We talked a little bit, in, I talked a little bit in that book about in 2016, back, back in 2016, that while we do have countermeasures for influenza, we do not have them for, for coronavirus. That is still the case today, and that is one of the problems. So even though we didn't monitor internationally, and even though it was, it was spreading and we didn't stop the spread, usually we have countermeasures that can help local areas deal with the crisis when it comes here with no countermeasures public health is basically uh, doing little more than than able to shrug its shoulders and say well, well we, we can't stop the spread and that is why we resorted to what we did which was social distancing social distancing was something that was part of the bush influenza planning something that i, I worked on uh, when i was in the bush administration at uh, white house and at hhs and with the social distancing measures, I went and reread the original report, and they talked in that report about community social distancing. I did not see anything in that report about national or international or you know, uh, worldwide social distancing. Uh, the idea was to get the help where it's needed to social distancing in those specific areas, and they, that, at least that report at the time did not envision shutting the country down. So again, unfortunately, those three levels of defense failed us, and that's something we have to look at, bolstering those levels of defense in the future so it doesn't happen again. Uh, the second thing is, what do we do now about this? And, and I do think we are seeing very different reactions and responses and deaths around the country. And I think, um, as with um, a military reaction, you need to bring the troops to where the problems are. What it seems to me from looking at the data are the biggest problems are in New York and the New York City vicinity, nursing homes, uh, where people where there are large numbers of, of old, uh, older individuals. Uh, I, I read that there are five states, including Massachusetts and New Jersey and um, Maryland, where more than 50% of the nursing homes have been infected with coronavirus. We're having massive problems at the nursing home level, and then also to some degree in, in prisons, it, it's a problem. And I think if we could direct our resources, at least the, the federal resources in those areas, I think that would go a long way. And at the same time, perhaps we don't need to be as strict on the social distancing or, or give a little more leeway to places like, let's say, Nebraska, places with much lower population density. And I think it's not just population density, South Florida. We had a uh, Secretary Shalala on earlier. South Florida obviously has uh, real population density. It's not having as much of a problem in New York City. It seems to me like we will find out in the, as we explore this that 
uh, the fact that New York City is so dependent on public transportation really contributed to the spread of, of the virus. And New York is more dependent on public transportation than any other city in, in the country. And I think that may have been a contributing factor here. So that, that's the second thing. Uh, the third thing I want to talk about and briefly is in, in the realm of what I see as uh, good news. And um, one thing that I was worried about in the early days was societal breakdown or uh, civil unrest. You know, in the 1960s, there was civil unrest in every single summer of the Lyndon Johnson administration. In fact, it was so severe and so bad that when Pat Moynihan entered the Nixon White House and, and talked to the outgoing Johnson officials as part of the transition, they gave him a mimeographed pad for calling out the National Guard in times of social unrest and, uh, and urban riots. And the pad, it had two blank spots on it. One was to fill out the name of the city, and the second was for the president's signature. And then you just fill out the pad and, and there you were. And that's how frequent this was a, of a problem in the 1960s. I think fortunately, and for all the talk about the angry people and the partisanship among the blue checkmark world on Twitter, I think for the most part, the American people have been fairly resilient in this case. You know, we, we see some relatively minor protests for them, but you're not seeing rioting. Uh, you're not seeing huge uptakes in, in crime for the most part. And even today in the Washington Post, I saw a poll that says, for the most part, the American people are supportive of the severe uh, mitigation steps that we have been taking to address this virus. So I think that speaks well of our national resilience, even if we are seeing uh, echoes of partisanship and, uh, and anger among the, the, the more blue checkmark crowd, the people on Twitter, the, the people who are, or, or let's say, uh, more outspoken in society of the people on the, on the, the cable network. So that, that, that's my one bit of good news. And then the fourth thing I want to talk about briefly before I come to a close is the issue of how an internal administration response goes. Uh, one thing that I have been disappointed with is the, uh, the levels that we're seeing of infighting within the White House. I've got um, my other um, more recent book out here, uh, Fight House, about fighting within administrations. And uh, we are seeing some unfortunate instances that you really can't get this thing resolved if you guys are fighting amongst each other. And I don't mean you guys here, but the people who are handling the response are fighting amongst one another. One thing I saw in Katrina was, even though there were problems and there were sometimes there was tension, you didn't get the sense that if somebody messed up, they were going to be knifed in the back in the Washington Post or the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times the next day. I was really distressed to see that article in the Wall Street Journal about Secretary Azar a few weeks ago. And one fact that just jumped out at me in the article is the reporter noted that two dozen of his colleagues had weighed in on this piece, meaning that uh, you're going to a meeting and you've got two dozen colleagues who are talking poorly about you to a reporter and you just have to wonder, can I say anything in this meeting or is it gonna show up in, in the papers in a way to my detriment? We also said there was a slight allusion to it, but uh, Dr. Cadlick also uh, had a, an unfortunate uh, tattooing in the Washington Post uh, yesterday. I don't know, it wasn't quite as clear if that was a, um, an orchestrated piece or it was just something that uh, came from the, from the reporters themselves. But this kind of thing is, is not helpful and need to find ways in future administrations uh, to see if we can find uh, more comedy among the team. Uh, and part of that is, um, is, is how a president builds a team. Part of it is what a president is looking for in a team and, and presidential tolerance for infighting uh, is something that allows more of it to foster. But, but another part of it is um, something that we've talked about in this group is uh, joint exercises and making sure that you um, do these tabletop exercises so you are prepared for disasters and you know what the capabilities 
and the responsibilities of each agency, and it also builds a level of teamwork so that you see less of this unfortunate sniping in, in, the, uh, in the optimal scenario. So with, with that, I will stop. I look very much forward to listening to uh, my other panelists on this and to having a further discussion among this August group. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Troy. And uh, we're gonna withhold all questions until all the panelists can conclude their remarks. Uh, Dr. Louis Saint, it's a great pleasure to welcome you. Uh, in the digital age, uh, uh, we'd much prefer to have you closer, maybe across the table from us, but for the, and maybe you'll have an opportunity, hopefully to join us in that fashion in the future, but thank you so much for joining us. We're very interested in your perspective and thanks for taking the time to share it with us. So I've been <laughs> um, asked to give um, my thoughts on the supply chains and the implications of the pandemic um, for supply chains. Um, and I, as I've often said in the last few months, I, as someone who works in the supply chain space, I don't think there's ever been this much attention um, with so little substance and clarity about supply chains. So I'm really glad to be with you all um, and really welcome the conversation about um, supply chain resilience. I have prepared a few remarks um, and I'll just take a, a few minutes to go through those. Um, for those of you who are not familiar with Healthcare Ready, um, we exist to really build and maintain partnerships that are essential to manage supply chain strains and disruptions during events. Um, we are a nonprofit organization and we were actually founded shortly after Hurricane Katrina to serve as a trusted partner for end-to-end -end supply chain issues and to work on issues of preparedness and response in an all-hazards environment. Um, recognizing that serious and catastrophic events pose a threat to healthcare and public health, there needed to be a, an infrastructure in place that could manage partnerships across the supply chain, but also with communities and healthcare owners and operators to work through the issues of coordination, information sh sharing, and problem solving related to preparedness and response. So on the breadth of that mandate, we've responded to more than 105 events in the last 13 plus years since we've been established. And our role and expertise gives us visibility into the complex nature of supply chains. Um, but I would also say that we are seeing very much the role of supply chain owners and operators in preparedness and response, the measures that those partners will go through to ensure minimal disruptions in the system. And it's with that that I'm going to actually offer a few remarks. Um, so as you all know, the supply chain is complex and there are many actors at every stage, but it is important to note that what we see time and time again is that they do commonly come together on these issues of preparedness and response and leave competition at the door. I think it's really important that we have that general recognition that in times of crisis, there are situations that are created that go beyond the steady state operating environment and we routinely see fierce competitors work alongside each other in events. It's important to make this point because because too often we hear concerns that competition disrupts the ability to plan and build more resilient supply chains. And I would refute that. It's just simply not been our experience that competition is actively hindering our ability to share information, build partnerships, or establish response plans. For all of our partners, we continue to see a focus on the well-being of patients and the desire to support health systems really being front and center. There are, however, other barriers and challenges that I think have been long understood and have been highlighted during this response. And so I do want to start with three preparedness constraints that existed long before this, and then I'll give you a few realities that have researched since the pandemic. So moments like this do remind us that supply chains, especially the healthcare supply chain, is critical in the globe's ability to respond to crises, but it's difficult to maintain the focus on the importance of supply chains after these events. 
It often has led to lackluster and a frustrating series of fits and starts as it relates to supply chain resilience policy and planning. So while I'm going to try to quickly get to what we're seeing right now, I'd be remiss to not address that there were many missed opportunities that we could have had to prepare for pandemics like this in the past. And that context is critical to understand exactly where we find ourselves now, not just as we're thinking about response, but also when we're thinking about the complicated reopening process and the future recovery that lies ahead. There are a few realities that we have to confront as we discuss supply chain resilience, and it's not enough to just say we have to address the supply chains without recognizing the level of response that we're expecting from commercial supply chains in these events often requires a dedicated investment strategy that far exceeds what a single company or portion of the supply chain could reasonably accomplish on their own. So as we've sought to prepare for catastrophic events like COVID, there's been a recognition long before that a crisis of this nature would exceed our typical or traditional crisis response tools and our shaping plans and historic demand relying on well-resourced companies would just not be enough. Put simply, we knew going into this that the existing capacity to respond to the pandemic was insufficient. But further, a pandemic is inherently a global event. It's not regional, it's not national, and it's not even continental like many of the other hazards for which we plan and prepare. That sounds fundamental and obvious, I'm sure, but the truth is that the recognition is critical to our ability to plan for supply chain continuity and requires fierce attention in our planning. So a pandemic, unlike other global health supply, like the global health supply chain actually, cannot be easily compartmentalized and tackled in discrete silos. To use a common refrain, neither respect borders, which is necessarily makes planning for supply chain operations during a pandemic enormous and a complex undertaking. We can't just plan for the strain of the supply chain based on increased demand for a region or a nation. Pandemics mean the entire globe is experiencing a same surge in demand at roughly the same time, which is why the planning has to be global. And these are all the realities that were incorporated into planning assumptions that we've had for pandemics and need to remain front and center as we look at the solutions. But three ongoing challenges that have hindered our ability to prepare further, the first being unclear sense of roles in the partnership required to create supply chain resilience. There's long been recognition that a pandemic would require an all hands and deck approach that involved both the private and public sectors, but it's not always been clearly defined exactly who would fill what roles in decision making to actually build supply chain resilience. As we've often pointed out, our government partners are critical in helping commercial supply chain owners and operators understand the expected demand and also to share information that helps them to plan. It's been clear that many actions needed to be taken, but not clear who received the mandate to take them, especially recognizing that much of this requires funding because it's outside of commercial standard commercial activities. The next point relates to resources that have not been made available. So secondly, the lack of sustained investment in solutions that are required to create a more resilient supply chain for all hazards has led to this frenetic approach in which we have continued to fund preparedness that has strained our ability to invest in dedicated capacity that would be used in a response. So generally speaking, we go in this cycle of seeing a response, having this in, increase in, in response funding, and then a lag in preparedness funding. You can't fund a resilient supply chain in that manner. And so without sustained government investment, there's really no way to do this without risking commercial sustainability. 
The third point I'll just make, and in the interest of time, I won't have the ability to go through it, but I'm sure Dr. Dr. Satterfield will, is that we have to look at the scientific investment in the R&D pipeline as a full part of this pipeline. So the investment strategy, when we're thinking about supply chain resilience, it's not enough to just think about the finished product that we're thinking about specifically for those infected patients or chronic disease patients. We have to look at the entire pipeline and start thinking about how we create supply chain resilience for all of it. But when we look at the current response, we have two very different supply chains that are at play. The med surge or medical surgical supply chain and the pharmaceutical supply chain. And they've surged demand many times. Um, some reports have even said a thousand times above historic demand patterns for the global community. But in addition to meeting the needs of their critical existing customers, we also have to remember that the supply chain has seen a new needs emerge downstream and with various forms of healthcare facilities now requiring product that they previously didn't need, there's not just surge from existing partners, there's also surge from new customers that they didn't have before February. And so it's important to note that companies also have a dedicated workforce that they have to think about and protect, and they have to support them as a part of their business continuity plan. And what we all know, but is rarely being addressed, is that the individuals who are critical to support those supply chains and they are actively responding to do their part to support the response are also experiencing the pandemic themselves. So we do also have to think about how the supply chain is able to protect its workforce to maintain operations. That includes delivery drivers, logistics personnel, warehouse staff, and we've seen a lot of companies really struggling to make sure that they had PPE and disinfection protocols and other things that are critical to protect protect their own workforce. And then finally, these are global supply chains. So that means that the travel and commodity flow restrictions that have been put in place by many nations, we're currently tracking right now, and we have at least one travel restriction from at least 95 countries across the globe. Those are going to, in addition to the grounding of passenger planes, those are going to complicate our ability to move product around the globe. So we've been activated at Healthcare Ready since January and supporting in a, a myriad of ways, and I'm happy to answer questions about that. Um, but I think it's, it's important to note that for our work, we're focusing on direct support for supply chain operations and serving as a liaison between major healthcare stakeholders and federal partners at FEMA and HHS, in addition to getting direct support to our communities because it is the entire pipeline. As the pandemic continues and we look towards reopening, the supply chain we've been working to stabilize is not quite out of the woods. Much of the previous focus of the response assisted with the availability of certain products, especially personal protective equipment. But as the response continues and the needs of both COVID infected and other chronic disease patients continue, the healthcare system is going to need to serve both of those patients and the supply chain is going to continue to see increased demand for various products. While some things can be predictable, this is an uncertain disease and with new potential therapies and treatments being authorized for emergency use and other changes in medical care, there's also recognition that there may be other products that may surge in demand that we did not foresee. This is also happening with things like anticoagulants right now as the Mount Sinai protocol has come online that's introduced Eloquist and other things into the treatments. Adding to this is that we're less than a month away from hurricane season. That's a time of year that already poses strain to supply chains and also can risk a potential for increased demand should a catastrophic storm impact the East Coast of the US or any of our Atlantic territories. And then finally, and of greatest concern to me in this moment, 
are the reopening plans that are taking shape across the country. As we begin to reopen the nation to save the economy, there are two main risks from my perspective if we don't do this properly. The first is that there will be an increased demand for protective equipment across various sectors, not just healthcare. And without clear processes on allocation, conservation, and use, we could find ourselves in a further deficit of PPE. The second is that there are rushed reopening plans or reopening plans that are being done without clear guidelines. And that could increase the number of cases that we see very quickly, also straining the healthcare system and increasing a healthcare's demand for PPE and other critical medical products at a time when other sectors are pulling those products as well. So I'll just finish with my final three recommendations broadly on supply chain resilience. The first is that I've observed a domestic manufacturing push, and I think the focus on supply chain resilience has quickly pivoted towards a domestic manufacturing um, concept in many policy areas. And while there's certainly a need to revisit domestic capacity for certain essential medications in the interest of national security, I don't think it's feasible to expect the bulk of the US, the healthcare supply chain to return to the United States. Capacity for US-only approach is limited by a number of reasons, including workforce considerations, existing manufacturing capacity, and sustainability of end-to-end -end production in the US, as well as environmental considerations and EPA regulations. There's a need to increase supply chain resilience, and the increase of domestic production should be one component of the solution, not the entire solution. I would also point you towards the Association for Accessible Medicine's recent report released earlier this week that actually highlights this question and poses a number of feasible solutions. There have also been a small group of companies established in the US within the last couple of years that have positioned themselves to be part of the solution. The strategic national stockpile, um, it fills a very critical role in our disaster supply chain system. It's important to remember that the design of the SNS is to fill a, address the gap in demand that exists if a threat emerged before the no, normal supply chain had time to adapt. It's a critical mandate, and I think we see now that it's essential for national security. However, it's under-resourced, and the model requires innovation to be able to provide sufficient coverage for the types of products that will be needed in the interest of our national security. For example, could we do rotation of product in partnership with the private sector and work with wholesalers and distributors to rotate product more readily? Should the SNS consider holding active pharmaceutical ingredient or other key source materials that could be used for production in times like this? There are other ways to expand the capacity of the SNS that don't just result in keeping more product on hand, and we really need to consider that. And I do think there's an opportunity to strengthen the capacity of the SNS, and I think HHS has the right partnerships with the private sector and internal capacity, but we need sustained funding and a commitment from senior levels of government in order to accomplish this. And then finally, I would just say investment. I continue to make the point about investment, but truly the solution to supply chain resilience does not live in any one owner or operator or even one component of the supply chain. Every stakeholder has a role to play, and that also includes dedicated investment to increase resilience in their component of the supply chain. That does include the government partners at the federal and state levels, but it also means we have to take a look at supply chain management at healthcare facility levels, which is an unpopular consideration, but could we start thinking about inventory levels and how supply chains are being managed at ancillary care and health systems, thinking about further resilience planning upstream, building more nimble processes that are able to adapt and surge with short notice. So I think there's definitely a lot to do there, but we do have to think about investment, not solely as a government investment, but as a corporate investment. 
thank you for your time and I'm happy to take any questions you might have. Well, that's a marvelous, fantastic, provocative, thoughtful presentation, Doctor. We thank you for that. I'm sure it's going to stimulate quite a few questions, but uh, we'll, we'll put those on hold for the moment. Uh, Dr. Satterfield, uh, a lot of questions with regard to testing, diagnostics, availability today and tomorrow. We're anxious to hear your, uh, get your point of view. Thank you, Governor Ridge. Um, so I, I am Dr. Brent Satterfield, and I'm the lead inventor and chief scientific officer for Co-Diagnostics. And I have been asked to talk about our experience in developing tests for the Zika outbreak a few years ago, as well as the coronavirus in the present. And before I say anything more on that subject, I'd like to acknowledge that I'm also a product of the initiatives of, of yourself and others that um, were taken immediately following 9-11. I was a first year Department of Homeland Security fellow and all that I've become since then, including my role in developing tests in the present outbreak, uh, came from the seeds that were planted back at that time. And so I, I believe that the actions of this commission have the potential to bear similar fruits in the future. Co-Diagnostics is a developer of nucleic acid test kits. Our mission has been to democratize PCR testing in many parts of the world where it's most needed. We've focused on developing technology that allows us to respond quickly to outbreaks and that allows mass production at prices affordable in many places around the world. To accomplish our goal, we had to develop technology that's more robust to changing laboratory conditions um, that are common in other parts of the world, providing consistently high sensitivity and specificity results. That focus meant we were in position to quickly respond during the Zika virus outbreak a few years ago and for the coronavirus outbreak in the present. We were among the first in the US to develop a test for the coronavirus right on the heels of the CDC's own test. We did this before it was a big business opportunity for diagnostic developers. We did it because it was our focus. It was our mission to do so. Um, we currently have US FDA, EUA, and European CE marking for the test. Our test has been evaluated in many parts of the world for its sensitivity, specificity, ease of use, price, and availability alongside others. Um, we've been selected by a number of international governments um, as the test of choice. And this has allowed us to really take a hard look at the conditions that have been presented not only in our own country, but in, in many other countries. The present outbreak has resulted in many unprecedented global responses. Uh, these responses have both helped reduce the spread of the virus and also created unintended consequences in shutting down the global capacity to respond. Supply chains and shipping routes have been interrupted around the world for critical supplies already depleted by unprecedented demand. By shutting down borders and businesses, we've shut down the very supply chains we depend on for development of diagnostics and treatments. Um, I've noticed on a, in, in looking at every war that has ever been won, uh, they've, we've put people to work producing the needed supplies, and that has been a huge part of winning. In this present environment, we have done the exact opposite in shutting down borders and industries, uh, and it's made it a lot more difficult. Our company, along with many others in this environment, have been, we've been challenged to address the, the needs as they have come up. Uh, day after day, we are told that a new border has shut, or we're told that uh, shipping's no longer available or we're told that supplies that, that we would have thought weren't, weren't even a critical supply are no longer available. Uh, as a uh, case in point, just a few weeks ago, we were told that dry ice was no longer available. 
And so it appears that many levels of the supply chain, they're affected by other industries that we would not have thought were necessary in order to keep the whole response going. Uh, but it isn't just the supply chain that's been impacted. Regulatory policies have been adopted and changed like never before. The potential for rapid response has been demonstrated and people from all, all parts of society have risen to the challenge. But even with this never before seen response, we can all see room for improvement. I, and it's about the regulatory aspects that I want to provide some very specific and actionable items. Um, the first one, to update the FDA emergency use authorization to encourage submission before an outbreak becomes an emergency. The, the name emergency use authorization already says the problem with that regulation. It requires the FDA to wait for an outbreak to actually become an emergency before acting, which absolutely prevents true preparation. Um, the second point, to update the CDC's role in an outbreak, to focus on the collection and communication of information, uh, specifically to labs that are seeking to develop diagnostics and or treatments. As has been noted by others on this panel, no organization, no matter how qualified, can handle the demands in a quickly evolving outbreak. We need all the different players in society to step forward to play their role. Uh, the CDC has an amazing role to play, or, and, and it really is useful to the extent that they're able to collect information to provide that information. We need it. Other players in this industry need it. Um, and so for them to focus on that, it really facilitates our, our path forward. Um, the third point, to update the FDA policy to anticipate the submission of diagnostic assays for which there are a few clinical samples. And an outbreak like this, uh, the key challenge in developing a diagnostic in the traditional pathway is that samples simply are not available. Uh, at one point, the CDC had, had finally managed to isolate the virus and those isolates were made available but very few of the test developers in our country have BSL-3 laboratories. So it wasn't very useful for many of us in the development of the test. Um, the FDA was very helpful in considering alternatives to using a BSL-3 level virus for, for test development. Um, however, that process could be greatly streamlined by knowing in advance that we're going to be dealing with outbreaks that where the samples are limited. Um, and to have a policy already laid out, an understanding already developed that's very clear to developers with the minimum expectation that's required, uh, that, that would save time for both the developers in having to do guesswork about what the FDA is gonna wanna see in that instance, as well as the FDA in their review process. Uh, in our experience in going through the, the FDA EUA, it was actually, it, relative to a, a full-on regulatory process, it was very accelerated, but even a few weeks time in, in, from the time that the application was submitted to receiving a response, uh, those few weeks make a critical difference in the, <clears throat> the evolution of a pandemic. So thank you. Oh, excellent. All right, very good. Well, I'm sure our colleagues have uh, 
uh, questions for all three of you. Jim Greenwood, would you care to uh, begin sure. the questioning? Yes, thank you. Great presentations. Um, I'm sorry if I'm, Dr. is it Dr. Luisant? Okay, close enough anyway, thank you. So I wanna to talk to you a little bit, ask you a little bit about um, supply chain issues. And you know, we've seen on the one hand, the sort of heavy handed, by God, we're going to have everything made in America and we're not gonna get caught short and that sort of thing. But that um, obscures the fact that there are a lot of reasons why things are made where they are. Um, not the least of them is, is the cost, tax incentives that exist in local um, other countries, um, natural local resources, um, uh, access to, um, to uh, uh, foreign markets. So um, it seems to me pretty evident that if we're going to become more self-reliant in these regards, it's going to take uh, <clears throat> more in the way of incentives than it is just mandates. And maybe you could just comment about, about that. Sure. So I think one of the um, one of the points that you just made is is really what's now being looked at as capacity um, as it relates to whether or not there is um, workforce supplies, local resources, regulations um, that is enabling, creating an enabling environment for domestic capacity. Um, I think there is recognition that there isn't. There are some perspectives that this provides an opportunity to reconsider um, what incentives need to be in place and what type of environment needs to be created for domestic manufacturing to come back. Um, but I think what we're trying to do right now, even on the healthcare ready side, is to encourage the conversation to be a little bit more focused on which types of products we actually need to think about creating domestically. And are we really thinking about moving the entire supply chain versus various components? Um, so one type of drug, for example, that we often think about are antibiotics, which are largely made outside of the US and we know have a bit more of a fragile supply chain. So it would make sense that a few classes of drugs um, are largely made in the US. But again, are we talking end to end or are we just talking about API production? And I think one of the challenges that we've seen, even in this domestic manufacturing push, is that it's been so focused on API that it's not thought about anything about getting to the finished product. And so um, I think we've turned a bit of a corner in, in the policy discussions about really broadening the realities of how we got here and why just forcing moving product back is also a pricing issue as well as a capacity issue. Um, but I also think there's an opportunity to refocus this. And, and one of the, the parts that we um, haven't really seen come out in the conversation yet is how do you balance the desire to bolster domestic security, national security, with the recognition that every other country is going to want to do the same thing. And so if we are thinking about this from the supply chain perspective, we have to recognize that it would be in every country's best interest to fully nationalize the supply chain, and that is in our collective poor interest, right? And so if we are taking a balanced approach, I think it makes sense to think about a few products that are critical for our security. And again, the SNS is a part of that solution because it may not be that we need to move all of the supply chains back. It may need to be that we increase production of some, but that we're creating a model within the SNS where the stockpile is actually holding and rotating higher levels of those critical products with the authorities to be able to release them for other events and not just during certain catastrophic events or certain types of pandemics. Thank you, Doctor. My colleagues, Senator Daschle, other members, we've got three panelists, feel free, we've got some time. If you want to, you don't have to limit your questions to one of the panelists. Uh, so feel free, Tom. Thank you, Tom. I, 
Dr. Luson, let me start with you. I, I, I really appreciated your description of the three challenges and then your three recommendations. I'd like to drill down, if I could, on the challenge part of it, um, I, because I think you're, you're absolutely right that one of the greatest challenges we have is further defining the roles of the stakeholders and the public and private sector. And, and I'd be interested if you could give us guidance on how you define those roles in an ideal set of circumstances. And then secondly, I, I couldn't agree more with you with regard to the need to, uh, uh, to ensure sustained investment. I think one of the challenges we have in ensuring investment is to recognize an investment in what? Uh, the coronavirus is a good example. We didn't, it didn't exist six months ago, or at least we don't know that it existed. So how do you invest in something that may or may not even exist? And how, from a public policy perspective, can we address the need for sustained investment without having a better understanding of where that investment should actually be placed? Absolutely. So I, I think on the roles part, um, from our vantage point, we really look at the supply chain as two supply chains. There is the normal day-to-day -day supply chain, and then there is what we like to call the disaster supply chain. Um, so when you think about what um, NGOs are able to do with donated medicines that they're pushing down, or even the stockpile, the SNS, for in our view, that is a disaster supply chain, which is intended to be there for times of strain, but not the normal supply chain. Um, and so when we think about the roles, part of our, our determination is that there has to be a threshold for what we expect to be capacity or resilience during steady state, during those normal times. And then how do we work across the supply chain to think about what that means downstream in terms of how do hospitals and other healthcare facilities increase their inventories. There are some hospitals that actually have the capacity to have 16 weeks of inventory on hand. And while they have been asking for PPE and they've been asking for critical medicines, we also knew that we had at least a month and a half to get them supplies before they would be at critical levels. And so that, for example, is an example of a role. What we've seen a lot of distributors do and wholesalers do is actually be able to not just support the commercial chain, but also the disaster chain and being able to work with the federal government to say, you tell us the areas of priority, we'll share our allocation algorithms, and then we'll work together to decide where these limited resources go. Manufacturers, I think we often focus on manufacturers in terms of supply chain resilience, but I think that one of the most important parts is thinking about how we enable manufacturers to protect their workforce and also maintain continuity. Are they increasing inventory levels during certain times of the year? In fact, they are. But how do you deal with a historic demand? And so what we've seen is that different companies, for example, may keep eight months of API on hand, may keep a year of other key source materials on hand. Thinking about how we harness those best practices, to me, that's another role. And then and it doesn't have to be a regulation, but it does have to be an expectation that that capacity is in place. The federal government, I think, has a really critical role in helping to, first and foremost, 
helps share information that is critical, sensitive intelligence that helps companies prepare. It has been very difficult to continue to maintain lines of communication that has allowed for sensitive information sharing. And we have mechanisms to do this. Healthcare Ready is in fact an ISAC, an information sharing and analysis center. There are processes that allow for this, but really leaning into working with the private sector to see healthcare as an arm of, of the entire system means that we have to be able to share that information. But also, it also means that we need our federal government to be able to work across the states. And right now, one of the challenges that we're seeing is that we're dealing with the supply chain partnerships that are happening at the federal government level, but that every state or groups of states are also pulling on the supply chain and cooperatives as well. And so that can create increased strain and it also means that it's not clear whose direction we should be following when we're thinking about how to allocate resources. So to me, that's another role. Being able to, before we even get to money, being able to just share intelligence and have planned coordination and understand that it is the role of the government to use the intelligence that's being gathered, use the public health data to help us determine where product is going to have to go because we knew we would have scarce resources. So we have to have those allocation plans and it shouldn't be, in my view, the responsibility of a company to determine where those products should go. That is in fact the role of the government. Uninvestment, I think you're, you're exactly right. And that's been part of the challenge that we've seen with even the SNS strategy and other allocation strategies. If you don't know what the event's gonna be, it's very difficult to think about how you invest in resources. Our thinking is that you have to invest in capacity and you have to invest in, in essentially being nimble. You have to invest in a system that has the ability to adapt. And that is not what we've seen so far. At least right now, I think we're getting to a place where we're starting to think about um, expanded capacity. What does it look like to invest in a system that knows that at a minimum we're going to need saline, but, but, but we really need to be able to have a boosted R&D capacity and we need to be able to have a BARDA engage and funding quickly so that we can have more R&D and we need to have that pipeline with the SNS. I think it's more about less about things and more about capacity and having not just the, the funding, but also having the authorities in place so that we can move nimbly and we don't get mired in bureaucracy and process when we need to be able to move quickly and make decisions. Thank you very much, Dr. Tom, I have more questions, but in the interest of time, let me defer to the you and other colleagues uh, for questions, and if there's time, I'll I'll uh, be happy to ask more. Thank you, Senator Ken. Yeah, appreciate it. Appreciate all your comments. Very interesting and um, thought provoking. Uh, Tevi, I just want to ask you something about. Um, you're still there, aren't you, Tevi? Yeah, there you are. Um, Something I'm sure you spent some time thinking about, you know, the in this is sort of the implications for health privacy uh, in the in probably the very near future as we try to deal with this and looking at what they've done in China with the sort of the color coding process um, and how that's being used to open the economy back up to allow people into uh, public areas to allow people out of their houses. Uh, obviously, that's a you know a a scheme that uses health information in an authoritarian government in an authoritarian manner. But obviously that's something that we need to be thinking about and um, or whether it's thermal scanning in public places looking for 
infections, doing contact tracing, this kind of thing. It seems like we're in for a rethinking of the sort of the, the, the sanctity of the privacy that we, uh, with which we treat health information. You have thoughts about that? Uh, whether we're going to see uh, things like that in the near future, whether we're going to have to confront those issues and how maybe those issues should turn out? Yeah, absolutely. Can. An excellent question. And I think we've already seeded a lot on the privacy grounds, not necessarily to the federal government, but to the tech companies. And they've done it for convenience, right? I use Gmail for uh, email. I'm sure some privacy person will tell me I shouldn't do that, but uh, it, it's hugely convenient. And there are all kinds of things that we do in terms of giving up our own privacy for convenience. Here, I think people might be willing to give up some privacy for safety. And again, I was uh, struck by that Washington Post poll that uh, the, uh, still a large majority of the government are uh, of, the, of the populace is in favor of the steps we've taken, which really are imp impingements on freedom. I, I recognize the need for them, and I, I don't disagree with the fact that we're doing them. But uh, I, I think the American people are in the process of, of rethinking these privacy questions. I also am, uh, re I remember uh, back when I was working on health IT issues with Secretary Levitt, and the issue of HIPAA would come up. And whenever we he liked to talk about the technology and what kind of records they would be and interoperability. Whenever HIPAA would come up, he would kind of stand up and say, okay, the lawyers are going to talk about HIPAA for five minutes. I'm going to walk out. And then when you're done with that, I'll go, uh, I'll get back into it because HIPAA is really a damn lawyers in, in many ways. And I, I think HIPAA does need to be rethought. I think it is written in such ways that it's, it's restrictive of the innovative steps we need to take in a situation like this. And in general, in creating a health IT system that would be, uh, more resist, resilient and create a better public health uh, environment. So I think we are going to have to rethink these, these issues in, in the months and years ahead. Okay, thanks. Important observations. Uh, Senator Lieberman. Uh, thanks, Tom. Um, Tevi, at the uh, beginning of your remarks, you referred to the international monitoring system um, that uh, was improved, uh, I guess, while you were in the administration. So uh, th that uh, seems quite relevant now, uh, particularly with all the discussion about uh, uh, oh, whether this uh, uh, COVID-19 started with transmission uh, from bats to animals to people, or whether it was an accidental uh, uh, leak from the Wuhan uh, lab. Um, so give us your sense, if you have it now, about what's the state of our capacity to monitor um, the uh, onset of a, of a potential infectious disease pandemic? Because obviously that's, this is like intelligence that an enemy is about to strike you. So you begin to get ready to defend yourself. Um, do you have any idea, but this is something that I don't think we much thought about. I didn't, and, uh, but it seems quite relevant now. Yes, Senator, it's an excellent question, of course. And look, for, first of all, I have no idea whether this started with a bat soup or a pangolin or an accidental lab release. But we do know that there was human-to-human -human transmission weeks before the Chinese authorities let other authorities know that that was going on. And I think that is a problem. There's also, uh, they had samples available a few weeks before they allowed CDC or WHO access to, the, to those samples. So sometimes governments know what's going on earlier uh, then they are willing to let on to others. And, and you are correct to note that there is, a, I guess, a, an intelligence advantage to knowing this stuff before right. others. But uh, I do think we, we need to uh, have a better 
system of cooperation. And I think the U.S. government has worked in the past with nations such as Indonesia, which has not been so forthcoming on sharing samples and finding ways to get them to be a, a little more cooperative. But the other thing is, and this relates to Ken's question, is really the issue of the tech companies. I think the tech companies in many ways are better able to monitor this stuff than, than the somewhat bloated and bureaucratic U.S. government is. And uh, we saw indications with the swine flu of 2009 that there were some uh, external tech companies that monitored mentions of certain uh, symptoms that were aware and cognizant of and concerned about the spread of this flu in Mexico in 2009, weeks before PAHO was, the Pan American Health Organization, or, or WHO was. And so I, I think, uh, and, and in the last 10 years, the capacities there have increased even further. So I think in some ways, uh, Google Trends can spot this stuff maybe before the CIA disease monitoring arm can. And I think we need to find ways to work with them better. Okay, thank you. It's helpful. Thank you, Tom. Right. Uh, Dr. Satterfield, would you uh, give the panel like a Cliff Notes version of your relationship with the federal government uh, particularly with regard to the information they provided so that you could build out a diagnostic test. Did you initiate the conversation? Did they uh, reach out to you? Uh, how much information was provided you initially? How much did you have to drag out of them? And then compare that with uh, your experience. And uh, weren't you involved also with the uh, Zika diagnostic? So if you just give us uh, one relationship you have vis-a-vis COVID-19 and whether it paired in comparison good, bad, or indifferent to the Zika. Because clearly, this is not the last pandemic. The next might be worse. It may be a mutant that we have no idea how to deal with in terms of therapeutics and vaccines. We need a different testing protocol. So whatever we need to do to expedite that entire process, I think is very important for us to appreciate and understand on this panel. Yes. Okay. Thank you. Uh, we've had involvements with uh, the FDA during both the Zika virus uh, outbreak a few years ago and as well as the coronavirus in the present. We've had very little interaction with the U.S. CDC. The involvement we've had with the CDC has been mostly limited to what we've been able to get from their website um, and information that has just been broadly disseminated through the community. So, I mean, some of the work that they've done and other governments have done in, um, in providing access to the virus sequences. For, for a test developer, that was critical for us, was the timeliness and the availability of the sequences of the viruses themselves, because that then allows us, along with other test developers, to immediately start applying our, our various methods and understandings and approaches to design work, but it can't start until that sequence is known, until it's disclosed. So the earlier that's, that happens, uh, the more of those sequences that are available so that we can anticipate not only the, the current strains, but what future strains might look like. Um, it gives us the ability to start design. Uh, so the the day that they were posted, we had already begun design. That was just something we dove right into it, um, saw that as something that needed to be done. We've been concerned with the international communities. We weren't even thinking at that time that it was going to come back to the U.S. or this was going to be something that we would be heavily involved with in the U.S. Uh, and then 
from that time of having created a test, we reached out to the FDA. And in both, both in the Zika virus outbreak, as well as the current coronavirus outbreak, we were the ones that reached out to the FDA. They have been very cooperative, very helpful in both instances. In the case of the Zika virus, we chose not to proceed to the EUA. As, as we monitored the overall progression of the virus, it looked like it was going to cost us more to go through the U.S. regulatory process than what we would be able to make back in profits from, from the sale of the test. So we chose to keep that as a test which was sold internationally, but not in the U.S. Um, the, with the coronavirus, um, we also reached out to the FDA and in this instance, we had partners domestically that were expressing a lot of interest in being able to use the test. Uh, they wanted to see that, that EUA. The FDA was very helpful in providing guidance. They were very quick to respond. Um, each time that we would reach out, they would usually respond the same day. I, to the extent that we had questions about the process or that, you know, where we went against not having the samples available in the U.S. to actually validate the tests, they were very helpful in providing suggestions or alternatives on, on ways that we could uh, use different uh, synthetic templates, synthetic viral particles in order to complete that validation in a way that they could accept. The only hiccup with that FDA process that I would say that we ran into is that once we finally had the data that they were requesting and submitted it, it took several weeks to get a result back, which ordinarily several weeks is a beautiful time frame. I mean, we would love to get that in any ordinary circumstance, but in the pandemic, several weeks wait time, uh, it resulted in a huge amount of change in our rural environment. Thank you. I I would not, I'm going to defer to my, my friend and colleague, Jim Greenwin, on this, but I'm, do I understand that, uh, that the virus sequencing information you consider to be absolutely essential to the development of a test, you didn't either get from CDC or you had to drag it out of CDC? I mean, where is that relationship? Uh, because it would seem to me that it would be in our national interest for as many people have been involved in that business whether they work with, with uh, uh, Jim Greenwood or anybody else to have that sequence and let the private sector get at it as soon as possible. So explain to me that relationship with CDC and the challenges you had getting the sequence, which again, I'm not a scientist, but it seems to me to be critically important if you're coming up with a, an effective diagnostic test. Absolutely. And it was, it was actually China who did the first work of the sequencing and the the release of those sequences. And so um, we have them to thank in large measure for being able to start when we did. And so as far as the CDC's role in that, um, they, they have gone on, let me, let me be specific with what benefit we have obtained in our interaction with the CDC information. They tend to look at uh, rates of viral transmissivity they look at different types of samples. I mean, in terms of all the places where the virus might be, they look at uh, the blood, they look at the urine, they look at the um, different forms of sample collection. They make recommendations about what they, what they think is working based on the data that they have. 
And that gives us huge shortcuts in, in taking steps forward because as we move through the FDA process, we're able to lean on that information that the CDC is putting on their website. And, and I wouldn't say that we had to like drag it out of them because it, it's public information, it's posted on their website. And so developers like us know that we can go there as a resource. Uh, and then as we're going through that FDA process, we can cite what the CDC has done, what they're recommending, and it makes it a, a very clear chain of, um, of understanding of, of where the process is coming from, and which allows the FDA to make a quicker decision. It, it also allows us to inform the, the hospitals, the, the different laboratories that are using the test as to what the CDC's recommendations are for the types of samples they should be collecting, how they should be running the tests. And so it, it has been very helpful. And that's the kind of information I would like to see more of. Um, to the extent that they made a test and they provided that, you know, that early phase response from the CDC, that was wonderful because at that point there were no tests out there. And, and so to have them not only run the test in their own laboratory, but to provide it to other labs, that, that was wonderful. Um, but the idea that an outbreak could be uh, solely or dealt with by a single orchestra, uh, by a single organization, even an organization made up of highly qualified individuals, it's just, it's too much to ask. And what we really need out of the CDC is the information that they bring forward so that companies like ours can succeed. And then with the whole group of companies that are out there making these tests, uh, collectively, we finally have enough supply chain or enough supply to start dealing with the, the outbreak. I just have one final question, and, and it kind of relates directly to the questions you've been asking, Dr. Satterfield. Dr. Satterfield, could you, is there a succinct way to draw some lessons learned from the experience in testing that we've endured now for the last two plus months? If you had to succinctly give us your counsel as to what we can learn from this experience and apply it to principles going forward, what would they be? So the first thought, again, it comes back to that regulatory pathway. It's we need to anticipate future outbreaks where the samples necessary to develop diagnostics are not immediately available. We need to anticipate that we're going to want um, a large supply chain ready in the event that it does break out. So one of the, the big changes we could make is shifting the emergency use authorization at the FDA from requiring an emergency before they start preparing um, to being proactive and say there is a new virus that's shown up and we want to get some tests on the market available today. Um, and, and so to have a means of pre um, of, of getting those tests approved before the emergency and to encourage companies because th there's a big risk for corporations out there to develop tests. We're a little bit in a, a little bit of a unique situation in that we have a focus internationally. Um, and so we're willing to develop tests at a lot of other <coughs> But for many developers, their shareholders, their investors, they're demanding, um, you know, to see returns for any kind of investment made. So, to get a developer to prepare a test before it is a international concern, uh, the hurdle has to be lowered 
so that the financial investment is lower so that they're they're willing to to have that ready um, in the event that that it does become something that is of global concern so that's the first thing um, we have encountered a lot of interesting situations that that they're different than the normal distribution of tests uh, with the current outbreak uh, there have been a lot of challenges at the state level in doing testing. There seem to be a lot of struggles between various groups of scientists and politicians. And a lot of those struggles have to do with the, the marshalling of resources, the, the questions of um, how valuable is life? And you know, at what point do we, do we worry about the lives of those who are committing suicide because the, uh, the economy is going downhill, their jobs are shut down, they're, they're financially ruined, versus the lives of those who are at risk from the, um, the virus itself. And so we've, we've seen that the testing, um, the normal testing that would take place in diagnostics is being interrupted and influenced by these different groups of people who are arguing back and forth. Uh, it's so there's still a little bit of division there um, where it would be better if we were able to come together more to um, to look at how do we provide how do we provide answers working together rather than being divided so much I uh, we've definitely seen um, within some states different groups that are trying to sink the efforts of the other side and we've seen it too with like uh, potential politicians who, who want to become the next governor and they're, they're looking to pick a fight with the existing governor's policies. And it's, I, it's hard not to turn those things into to political discussions, but um, if to the extent that we're able to remain focused on the end goal of saving lives, of getting diagnostics out there, getting treatment out there, um, and bypass some of the, the political side stuff, that, that would help tremendously as well. Thank you very much. Good answer. Yeah. Uh, Senator Lieberman, do you have another question? Uh, just one for uh, Dr. Louison. Thank you. Um, I, th I think your comments on the supply chain were very thoughtful and balanced. Um, and particularly so now because there, we're in a time where people are uh, making very strong statements that we've got to do everything here at home ourselves. It's, it's just not possible. But let me ask you how you answer this question, uh, because a lot of this has to do with um, uh, growing suspicion of China. And of course, a lot of the supply chain uh, comes from China now. Um, how, how do you respond to that? If people say, well, it's one thing if uh, uh, some of the supply chain is in Germany or Italy or whatever, but uh, China, it, it can't, we have to stop it. What do you say to that? Sure. I think um, there, there's been, um, for a few reasons, including some publications, there's been an increased focus on China as a sole vulnerability point and pulling supply chains out of China. Um, I always urge 
colleagues who are, are thinking through this to remember that um, while a, a lot of API, active pharmaceutical ingredient, is in fact made in China, um, there are a lot of medicines that are not fill finished in China. And so while we think about the vulnerability that we have um, globally by having one country making the majority of um, a, comp a specific component of medicines, it's also not in their strategic best interest if their goal was to shut out the rest of the world to not have more capability to do fill finish. So I think, again, it's a part of a nuanced approach and we do have to recognize that, you know, as, as um, Representative Greenwood said, there is a there's a reason that that happened as well, which has to do with creating an enabling environment. It was not just a, a nefarious scheme right. to amass all of the API into China, but it is a recognition that because of a lot of things, including just lack of geographical redundancy, we've created a vulnerability that needs to be resolved. But it isn't enough to just say we're going to move it from China and bring it back to the United States. Um, we also have to think about what that vulnerability means as well. But in a globalized supply chain, yes, China does make a lot of API. They also have a lot of manufacturing capacity of other um, key substrates for a lot of other supply chains as well. But it's often single components. And what you'll see in their supply chain and their economic strategy is that what they've done is really focused on manufacturing capacity of a single component, not fill finish. So that's been my approach to really thinking through how we deal with some of the suspicion that comes from how we got here. Their economic strategy has been really focused on making those core components of many supply chains because that's a job that many countries did not want. So as we are thinking about how we actually diversify the supply chain, I think we have to kind of upend this notion that it has to be pulled from China and in fact focus on what it looks like to build a resilient supply chain. We're dealing with issues getting product out of Europe right now because there aren't more passenger planes that are flying and those are fill products. So I would actually argue that that's more important thinking about how we're going to get product that is finished from Europe back to the US that we need right now than to make an argument about shifting all of the API production out of China. Uh, that's a very helpful answer. Yeah, just one quick point on that. Look, I'm a of Ricardo's uh, theory of uh, comparative advantage, and I recognize that we do want to get materials from elsewhere around the world, and that is a uh, that that is the best way and the greatest good for the greatest number and all that. When I served in the Bush administration, President Bush was very concerned about supply chains coming from elsewhere, not from China per se, because that was in the early 2000s, but from Europe in case of flu vaccine. And what he did was he brought together the pharmaceutical companies and said, if there is a problem with a flu outbreak and we can't get the vaccines we need from, again, from Europe at that time, what can we do? And he brought them together. I remember I was in the meeting in the Roosevelt Room and he asked, what are the hurdles to you guys doing the domestic manufacturing? And there were some concerns about uh, collusion with the Justice, Justice Department. That was one of the reasons they were reluctant to do it. And President Bush said he'll work on that side with the Department of Justice and that they should work on those. He didn't say change all your manufacturing processes. He didn't say bring everything at home, but he did say you should have a plan for what to do if, they, if things go wrong. And I think that is the way we should be looking at it. Don't upend the entire supply chain, but have backup plans. Thanks, Toby. Yeah, I love that answer. Go ahead, Jim Greenwood. Thank you. I'm gonna pose a question to uh, Dr. Troy, uh, relying on your expertise with uh, presidential history and leadership. If you look at 
um, the approaches that Governor Cuomo has taken and tr President Trump has taken, they're pretty much mirror opposite approaches. And uh, here we are less than six months from an election and it's clear that um, the approach that Cuomo is taking is saying, we're going to open up, but we're going to turn the valve closed if we start to see the numbers rising again. On the other hand, we see the president pushing as hard as he can to get things open uh, because he wants to for a lot of obvious political reasons. That's what his base wants. Um, so what, what the question is, 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 is we move towards opening, which we are in one way or another in various places in the country doing, uh, and we start to see that that has, in fact, had what we expected to do, which will raise the, the, the numbers in terms of infections and, and unfortunately, deaths. Um, and, and both Cuomo tries to turn the gauge closed, um, and perhaps the president doesn't. What, what will, what's going to allow that? I mean, it seems like once you start opening up, there's a momentum that almost seems irreversible. And, you know, just your, your thoughts about how either from the governor's point of view or from the president's point of view and, 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 and what would put, what, what phenomena would put brakes on the president um, to actually tell people oh, we need to go back, back home? Yeah, well, thank you for that question. And if I had a choice, I wish that that weren't the two choices I was presented. I mean, you know, maybe, maybe I'd rather look at, let's say, a uh, uh, Governor Polis versus Governor DeSantis. I, th I think there are other options out there. Also, in terms of opening up, I think it's not just a question of political advantage, although there could be political advantages to it, but the recognition that there is a need because people will will be starving, not just because of their inability to purchase product because they have no income, but also because if the food supply chains break down, there won't be food, especially in, in, mm -hmm. in, the, in the cities. So uh, I, I think we really do need to towards to move towards opening up again in a careful way, um, I, I do think that um, the role of the federal government in some ways is overstated. That was one of the arguments I was making in my book. If things really go wrong, you can't count on the federal government to help you as an individual. That doesn't mean there aren't things the federal government can do. And I take uh, to heart what Dr. Satterfield was saying about how uh, CDC can help the private sector develop uh, testing in a, in a faster way. And I think that's great. And I think the federal government can put out larger messages. I think the president and the federal government can be extremely helpful in conveying a sense of the appropriateness of what the response should be. Should we be panicking? Should we be calm? Should he, does he recommend sheltering in place? But when it comes at the local and individual level, the federal government really just doesn't have the capacity to be there. So I, I, I would urge trying to get away from this model of the president is the solution to it all. And, and I think we, we see this uh, with this current president that sometimes he's talking about, um, you know, I have supreme authority and then the next day he's saying, well, the governors should be in charge of these decisions. Um, and it's not just because of whim, it is because it's a really complex question. And while the federal government does indeed have some vast powers, a lot of this is up to the states, and we really hope that the states can do it in, in a responsible way. So I guess in, in answer to your question, Congressman, it's really, it's a question of balance. We need to recognize that the federal government has things that they need to do, and I'd like to see them do it better. And I talked in, in my remarks about some of the failures on the federal level. I think the states have things that they need to do. And then last is the issue of individual preparedness, which is something I spent a lot of time in my book. I think individuals need to do what they can to be prepared in cases like this as well. And again, not be counting on the federal government to bail you out in every respect. Thank you. I have uh, two final questions, but before I ask my questions, I want to ask either my colleagues or the ex officio members that have joined us on this call 
if you have any questions of this uh, panel. Um, I, I would like to jump in with um, two questions, actually. This is a-, a Wait, no, please. I've been wait We've been waiting for you anyhow. Okay, you're so kind. Thank you. Um, but too, and they kind of revolve around the diagnostics, and we've heard some other um, people speaking earlier this morning about on the diagnostic side. And I know that um, one of the reasons we actually know about COVID-19, about this virus, is because of the scientists in China doing um, all the initial tests in the hospital, of course, were negative because the diagnostics were for known viruses, not for unknown viruses. But they use very simple PCR techniques for pan-coronavirus and pan-influenza and pan-paramixo and found a corona. And then by the next day, they were able to identify it. And colleagues in Thailand did exactly the same thing. They started with that. So I'm like, one, the first question is, one is, is there a market and a possibility of having simple PCR diagnostics? And we talked about engaging all the states and the counties of the U.S., equipping them to do some of that novel diagnostics also using some PCR diagnostic techniques that are uh, cheap and simple uh, to detect new things so we don't, the, bar, the horses aren't always out of the barn when we start to work, to quote Mr. Greenwood's talk last week. Um, and then the second part of that is, you know, how, you know, when can we let the American public, and maybe Dr. Troy would comment on that, um, Mr. Libby talked a year ago about, you know, Americans are probably responsible enough to keep 10 ciprofloxacin tablets at home. Do we really need to limit that and have a prescription each time? Um, and could we do something with home diagnostics and people could get this? I know in the veterinary community, everybody wants their animal tested and CDC is reluctant because they're going like, well, let's not let run out of supplies for humans because we're really so limited, but maybe the answer is really broad availability and, the, and, the, and engage the public and let them be engaged in their own health care also. So those two questions for you. I'd love to address the, the second part of the, of the question, uh, Billy, because uh, you're really singing my song there. I am a big fan and, and was in government a big proponent of med kits. I think they can be deployed safely across the population. We've done testing that shows that very few people will break the seals and use them in, uh, inappropriately. And I think they can lessen the burdens on first line responders and they can also uh, lessen the distribution needs when things happen. Now the question is, of course, what are the, uh, what, what are the things that you would put in this? And I think that that is often a, a difficult issue. And I think Dr. Alessandro was talking a little bit about this when we were talking about the issue of what should be in the stockpile. And I think you want to have things that are, uh, for the most part, as broad-based as possible. So when I was talking about the lack of coronavirus countermeasures in 2016, I was talking about comparing it to flu, where we didn't have a flu vaccine for an un unyet-known strain of flu, but we had platforms whereby we could readily, quickly develop the new flu vaccine once we got the information on the strain. And we didn't have antivirals for, let's say, swine flu per se, but we had influenza antivirals that we knew could work across a cross number of strains. And so I think those would be the sorts of things we should be thinking about when developing the med kit. I will say, however, that uh, uh, CDC and in general, the public health community has been resistant to this in large part because of their general attitude of not trusting 
the American people. They want to be in control of what is distributed when. And uh, I, I think that is all fine in certain circumstances, but when we are in a situation of crisis and we need to move quickly, and there are huge distributional challenges with the strategic national stockpile, which as I've testified for this committee before, is very good at getting materials to a general area within 24 hours, which is how quickly you need to get it. But distributing it to each and every home within that general area is a much bigger, much bigger hurdle. Thank you. With the first part of the question, uh, with respect to putting diagnostics into the counties, that's uh, it's certainly a possibility. Our experience is that uh, PCR has been better suited for high complexity laboratories. And while most counties do have, or I guess many counties, especially with the bigger cities, have um, high complexity laboratories, even there, the the majority of the staff in place are they're better at following instructions to do a diagnostic rather than doing the kind of um, discovery work that takes place in looking for a novel virus. Uh, that being said, it may be that if there were an emphasis placed on sequencing technologies. Um, that, that pan primers for like like the pan coronavirus, like you were mentioning, can be placed in those areas and they can be taught to, to do diagnostics, to do sequencing. So there's some potential there, but it would require elevating the sophistication of the lab workers so that they're capable of doing more than just um, following the instructions on the machine, that they understand a little bit more of the science that's behind it and they're able to, to innovate. I mean, re really what we're asking for there is, in that concept is that every county lab becomes like a, a miniature CDC in the sense that they, they have that capacity to think critically about the problem, to investigate it, to dis discover causes. And I believe that there, there's potential for that, but it, it would require um, not only an increase in the amount of equipment available in local resources or local places, but um, the amount of training available. And there might be a, a halfway solution to that, where instead of looking at putting those into, say, county offices, to, uh, to take each of the major uh, cities where there are going to be these larger high-complexity complex labs and work with them to have those types of capacities. So there, there may be an intermediate solution like a university hospital or Precisely. a university lab. Okay, thank you. Any further questions from any of our colleagues? You know, I, I wouldn't mind just uh, firing one more, Tevi, if I could. Um, Tevi, just the, the same question that I put to Tara earlier today, and you talked about it, this a little bit in the outset. Um, you were part of the uh, creation of the recommendations about how Leadership for biodefense should be centralized within the federal government. Um, we, you know, came up with those recommendations based on a good bit of accumulated experience, including a very large part yours, dealing with various crises. But now we've seen a crisis uh, that's um, more serious with more far-reaching ramifications in all area of governance than I think uh, any of us have really ever dealt with. Have your thoughts about how 
the federal government, especially at the higher levels, White House, interagency, should structure itself to deal with biodefense? Have they changed, given your experience going through COVID-19? Yeah, Ken, it's a good, it's a good question. I know you're, uh, you're happy to fire questions. I mean, you're never reluctant when you're in government either, which is great. Uh, look, my thought, when, when I was in graduate school and uh, we talked about uh, writing dissertations, I had one piece of advice for everybody, which was don't change your topic. People would change their topics, never got out. And, and I think one, one thing we're seeing in every government, Republican, Democrat, whatever kind of administration, is they always like to rearrange the deck, deck chairs and change everything. And you see uh, Bush created the Homeland Security Council, which I know we have uh, Governor Rich, who's the first chair of it. And then Obama got rid of the Homeland Security Council and put it under the National Security Advisor. And then Trump recreated it. And then they got rid of the flu director. I think all of this rearrangement is really problematic. And I think if we could have some kind of consistent approach, you don't change the Department of Health and Human Services every time there's, there's a new government. I think we should have a consistent approach that would be extremely helpful in, in going forward. Uh, I know our idea of the vice president uh, got a lot of attention when they used Governor Pence, uh, Vice President Pence, to, uh, to run a task force. It looks like they're going to be changing the task force. Maybe Pence will be involved. And it seems to me, from what we learned from this, is that it is very helpful to have the vice president to step in during a crisis to galvanize people. But I don't think that is the day-to-day -day management of whatever this entity is. And I could see five different entities and five different ways of going about it. But whatever you do, stick with it from administration to administration would be my strong approach. Yes, Dr. Alexander? Yes, um, considering uh, the time now, I just wanted to um, compliment, I think, uh, the panelists. And uh, they raised some very profound uh, issues. Uh, the last panel, for example, what struck me, the interdisciplinary uh, approach, uh, the moral and the ethical uh, questions and issues uh, simply relate to life and death. As we know, the choice uh, who would live and the choice who would die simply based on the supply that is needed in the test, for example. And I think uh, one for the future, I think we have to focus uh, attention much more on the clarity to clarify some of the concepts, definitions um, related to national security concerns that uh, were mentioned today, uh, all, all the way, I think, in terms of whether we can call the COVID-19 a biological, uh, actually, weapon, and uh, some of the other uh, issues that were uh, raised. Um, but I think, again, uh, there is a need to continue the dialogue Obviously, no one session can cover all the issues. And I think uh, the commission uh, is uh, actually moving in the right direction, particularly now with this opportunity to continue to discuss the issues. So again, I, I think uh, there was a great deal of discussion and issues and ideas and fresh ideas, and uh, I think we should continue as soon as possible 
to continue with this work. Well, thank you, Dr. Alexander. I think uh, you probably uh, voiced the appreciation for the commission and ex officio members of the panelists and those who appeared before us earlier today. We're going to conclude this session with our gratitude to the last panelists. Uh, actually, it's been one of the most provocative sessions. We've been doing this, uh, ladies and gentlemen, remember now for six years, three or four times a year, and this might have been, well, it's probably the first digital interaction we had. And frankly, on behalf of the panel, we'd like to thank you for, for giving us the opportunity to talk to you without a mask on. That's certainly been a relief. Um, but uh, more importantly, really, you were provocative enough and giving us more insight as we continue to our work collectively, both with the federal and the state governments, and all those uh, in the public and private sector who want to take the learnings, both good and bad, of COVID-19 as we build out even broader detection response uh, capabilities and hopefully preemptive capabilities in the future. So we thank you for that. I'm gonna ask my colleagues if they have any final uh, observations to make before I turn it over to my, our co-chair, my co-chair and our friend, Senator Lieberman. Any of my colleagues, any final statements? I'm good, thanks. I guess that's very succinct, but it says it all. So <laughs> I will go to it. Senator Lieberman. Thanks, Tom. Uh, I agree with you. It's been a very uh, substantive and uh, constructive session. Uh, I was thinking that at one point, uh, I guess after we did our initial report, when we uh, concluded after all we had learned that the country really wasn't prepared for an infectious disease pandemic and we made suggestions about what should uh, happen to get us prepared that, that uh, we, we talked about us as the Paul Revere's of the, the 21st century of biology. Uh, but the problem was that unlike uh, Paul Revere warning that the British were coming, uh, no matter how many times we said an infectious disease pandemic is coming, it wasn't as real to most everybody as the fact that the Brit British were already uh, on American soil, but now it is. And uh, I think we really have a responsibility, and I know I speak for the commission, to uh, carry on. And uh, I, I very much like, uh, we've got a lot of good ideas uh, today, but I, I thought uh, Donna Shalala sort of wrapped it up in a, in a conceptual package, which is the next report is what's next? Uh, based on what we uh, learned, what we recommended, what was not done, uh, what's next so that uh, the next time, either the next surge of COVID-19 or the next infectious disease uh, pandemic, that uh, America's ready. And uh, I think we're in a unique position uh, to do that. And thanks to our financial sponsors, <clears throat> and to the Hudson Institute, which continues to be our uh, home, virtual home, uh, we have the, the wherewithal to do it. So I, I look forward to working with you, Tom, and the other members of the commission, official and ex-officio, to see if we can realize uh, that potential and, and carry out that responsibility. Thank you very much.